Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, December 8th, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. It's December, Andrew, but on the PW editorial calendar, that means it's time for a spring preview. It's one of the biggest issues you and your team put out every year. That's right. And it's a great issue once again. And uh, yes, PW's announcements issues are no longer called announcements issues. From here on out, we are now calling this, well, exactly what it is, which is, as our reviews editor, David Adams notes, a preview. Uh, So these are now the spring preview, and in the fall we'll have the fall preview, uh, because these really do function as previews of the adult fiction and nonfiction titles publishing in 2024. We're still getting used to that name around the office here. There's even talk of like a swear jar or a a fine for every utterance of the word announcements. But uh, longtime PW readers will understand right away that while the packaging, the name might be new, The feature and the goods here are exactly the same, just a whole bunch of really great books. Uh, Once again, PW Reviews editors have sifted through the thousands of submissions we get to pull together their top selections for the notable books of the spring and summer in 13 categories. Each category has a top 10 list and a long list that is chock full of promising books, everything from debuts to hotly anticipated returns. And there's also a database of all the submissions we get if you want to wade through that. And that's at publishersweekly.com backslash previews. So check out the list for some great reads, things to be on the lookout for in 2024. And be sure to check back in the new year. We have a comics and graphics novels preview coming out in January, on January 22nd. And our children's books preview drops on February 5th. The U.S. Copyright Office is conducting a study on AI and copyright and has invited public comments on the topic, Andrew. Many publishing industry stakeholders have weighed in, including the Association of American Publishers, which says the tech industry's fair use defense is nonsense. Yes, so this was the second round of comments submitted to the Copyright Office by the AAP. These were, in effect, reply comments. And in those comments, the Association of American Publishers insisted that Counter to the suggestions made by some of the tech industry players, the U.S. copyright law does protect authors, publishers, creators, copyright holders from the unauthorized appropriation of their works by AI developers. And specifically, the AAP slammed the assertions by the tech industry that fair use sort of functions as a kind of blanket license to use all the copyright works they wanted to train their systems without any permission or compensation to the rights holders. And I found these comments and this submission by the AAP to be fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to the final product from the Copyright Office when that comes out. But I really think the AAP did a great job of hitting all the right notes in their argument, even if I'm not quite sure they're 100% right on everything that they asserted here. And I'll get to some of that in a minute as to how I think They may have missed the point on some of this stuff, but why I think these comments are really important and probably effective, even if they don't end up carrying the day. So in essence, the AP in their submission told the Copyright Office that the tech industry needs to stop telling copyright owners to back off their claims that, you know, they should be compensated or at least give permission to have their work used in the training data sets for these generative AI systems. And I love this line from the AAP comments. The AP writes, 
It is deeply ironic that these billion-dollar companies bemoan the financial burden they would face if they were required to pay reasonable license fees to the copyright owners whose works are the very building blocks of generative AI and whose livelihoods are threatened by the same systems. I think that is a really potent observation, one of several potent observations in this filing. But also as an observation, I have to say, we've heard that before, right? Specifically, we heard that in connection to the Google Books case. So again, I'll be interested to see where the Copyright Office report lands, and more importantly, what policymakers do with it once it does. What else jumped out at you in the AAP filing? So I would encourage listeners to check out our report on the Publishers Weekly website. The AAP comments are there. We link to them. You can go right to the filing yourself and look at them. Uh, you can look at both of their submissions. And also the public comments are available on the Copyright Office website. So you can go to the Copyright Office website and look through those. They're browsable and they're searchable. There's more than 10,500 of them as of the closing deadline, which was on Wednesday night. But, you know, one of the other things that jumped out at me in the AP filing was the thought that, you know, these submissions from the tech industry all kind of asserted that the right situation, the copyright situation is something of an obstacle to their innovation. And the AAP had a word for that, nonsense. They called it nonsense. Now, whether you believe or don't believe in the AAP's point, you know, they cite the, you know, the bazillion dollars in value the copyright returns. I forgot the exact number quoted. It's a lot. The AAP notes that authorship is what's at stake here, right? And the, the chain of authorship and that authorship cannot be taken for granted. And I think that is just a vital, super vital point to carry forward in all of this. But here's the one that knocked my socks off from the AAP filing. They write, it would be a grave error to repeat the past policy mistakes that allow technology companies to achieve an unhealthy monopoly-like market dominance to the point that governments have struggled to curb their power. That is, for me, game, set, and match and all of this. That really, I think, is the heart of the matter here. Uh, and here's why. You know, As I've said before, I think copyright law and the courts may not be the most effective path forward when it comes to reining in AI. You know, I actually think there's a pretty strong case for fair use by the AI companies, as do virtually all of the lawyers I've spoken to and as we've reported in PW. And so far, the copyright cases filed against AI for using these works in their training have faced setbacks in court, including a recently a case filed by a group of authors. But at the same time, copyright lets us ask the right questions about what's important to us from a policy perspective. So even if the courts find that they are not going to step in right now, even if they do find fair use, we have to know, and we do know, and these filings help us point out where the fault lines are for legislators to the extent that we think our legislators can still get the job done. Apologies, cynical me there. But you know, I think the AAP comments here are invaluable to that discussion. They're invaluable to what will be, I think, a vital policy study from the Copyright Office, which I know I look forward to reading, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. In Congress, the Fight Book Bans Act was filed this week. Yeah, so kind of big news, right? On December 5th, a group of Democratic members of Congress, led by Florida Representatives Maxwell Alejandro Frost and Frederica Wilson, along with Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin, uh, introduced a new bill to fight book bans. It's called, as you say, the Fight Book Bans Act. And this is legislation that's specifically aimed at combating the surge of book banning in schools. Uh, specifically, the bill 
which Frost's office said already had the support of 50 members of Congress, would enable the Department of Education to provide grants to school districts to cover expenses incurred while fighting book bans. And those expenses, I know talking to libraries and schools around the country, are considerable. Uh, and that would include the cost of retaining lawyers and legal representation, the cost of traveling to hearings on the bans, whether that's in state capitals or even in Washington, and the logistics of those hearings, of getting your policy in order. Uh, you know, it also would help cover the cost of obtaining expert research and guidance to help people understand how to comply with new bills or to do what's right in terms of what's what should be allowed in schools. Under the bill, the DOE would provide up to $100,000 to a given school district with total appropriations capped at $15 million over five years. And given from what I've seen around the country, I think that $15 million cap would be hit pretty quickly if this law was to pass. In a statement of support, Laura Schroeder from PEN America, I think, said it best. Banning books in schools is not only unpopular, it's expensive. <laughs> now, the bill comes as the latest data shows that book bans continue to surge in 2023. Uh, in August, PEN America found there were 3,300 instances of books banned in public schools in the 2022-2023 school year alone. That's a 33% increase over last year. So definitely something needs to happen here. But I'm not sure it's going to happen in Congress. This is the second bill, actually, that's aimed at protecting school libraries this year. Back in April, Senator Jack Reed and Representative Raul Grialva uh, reintroduced the Right to Read Act. And among its provisions, that bill would ensure that not only that all students have access to a school library, but it would also extend liability protections to teachers and school librarians amid all of these state laws that are now threatening librarians and teachers with fines and jail time or job loss just for providing access to books that some people think are inappropriate. That bill, of course, has not advanced. And as I said, I don't expect that the current bill, the Fight Book Bans Act, is going to advance either, though I still think they are important and good bills to have. So if you don't expect either bill will advance, Andrew, why do you think it's worthwhile to have Congress even consider them? Well, politics, right? In a word, of course, politics. You know, in 2023, there were two separate hearings on book bans in Congress, right? There was one in the House and one in the Senate. And both, I watched them both a couple of times, actually. Both were disastrous from my point of view. Uh, first, on September 12th, the Judiciary Committee in the Senate held a hearing, and that hearing ostensibly on book bans. It started with Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois offering a quite a good opening statement. And then it descended into this chirpy 25-minute partisan debate about the southern border. And when it finally got back on track, back on the subject of book bans, Republican witnesses and legislators proceeded to run the same playbook employed by right-wing activists at school and library board meetings across the country. They started reading aloud these cherry-picked graphic sex scenes from all of these banned books. Most notably, most scarring, I should say, was Louisiana Senator John Kennedy reading from George Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue. Uh, NOLA.com, you know, hilariously dubbed that the audiobook nobody asked for. And I would tell you to all go back and take a look at that and listen to it, but you really don't want to. <laughs> and then on October 19th, the Republican-led House Subcommittee on Early Childhood Elementary and Secondary Education chaired by Florida Representative Aaron Bean, held a hearing that was entitled Protecting Kids, Combating Graphic and Explicit Content in School Libraries. And you can tell 
uh, by the title exactly the way that hearing was going to go, right? The message from that hearing overwhelmingly was, hey, there is no book banning. That's all just made up. What we really have is an epidemic of pornographic books in schools and libraries. So there is this real partisan divide in Congress, a divide that's not only divisive, but it's proven to be great fundraising on the right. Uh, you know, they've been using it to whip up uh, conservative anger and get people to the polls and get people engaged, which is why I think it's important to have these bills, because it allows us to put these issues out into the light. And I think that the more exposure these get, the more Americans get to see how these things are being debated and what's really going on here. And the polls kind of sort of back this up. More and more Americans, I think, are getting turned off by the idea of banning books. Time will tell if I'm right or wrong. You know, maybe my hope is displaced here. But when we stop having these partisan fights over fundamental freedoms, like the freedom to read, that's when I'll really be worried because it will probably mean that we've ended up, you know, losing our democracy. Hopefully not. But, you know, I think it's a good step that we have uh, some legislation addressing book banning being introduced, even if I don't think it's going to get very far. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor. Thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on CCC's podcast, you may read a book front to back, cover to cover, and still miss the title verso, but not Richard Charkin, because that's where he starts reading. The title verso is where to find who is the copyright holder. On every title verso, all rights reserved will appear. Charkin tells me why these three words are so important to authors and to publishers. All rights reserved means all rights reserved. They have to ask permission before they do anything. It's incredibly powerful. And the fact that it's only three words makes it more powerful than the longest, the hundred page documents you see as contracts in some case. All rights reserved. It means all rights reserved. And rights means all media. It means everything. Of course, the publisher of that edition may not have all rights in that book. The author does, which is why I say, I think in a way it's more important for the author. In praise of the title verso, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.